What feelings does the word church evoke in you? Yeah, I heard a laugh. Yeah. It's a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, for all of us, it's a mixed bag. It really is true. This thing called the church, this beautiful bride of Jesus. And by the way, whenever I talk about someone's bride, uh, I try to be discreet around them. Isn't that just smart? And when I talk about Jesus' bride, the beautiful bride called the church, uh, you usually hear me say pretty encouraging things, don't you? I think that that's a smart way to talk about the bride, that he is making even more and more beautiful. But haven't you bumped into the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, these two metaphors that are often used, the family of God, the church as we call it, and come away with mixed experiences? I generally have really warm feelings that are evoked with the word church. I go back in time to the two country churches that I grew up in, and neither of them could ever be over 100 people because of how they did business. But the way they did business was so cool. Like the vast majority of churches in the United States, they were under 100 people in average attendance, and they were under 100 on purpose. It's because they how they did business. But it was really cool. It was an extended family, and and we dressed up for church. I mean, I did a wedding today. I was wearing suit and tie, white shirt, and most of you didn't catch me there. But you would have said, "Is I know you're a twin." But we dressed for church, and we came to church, and we sang songs that were about 50 to 60 years old, by and large, uh, songs from the 30s and the 40s, uh, gospel choruses. And when we had special music, it included a guy, a dear brother. Brother Wayne, and he brought his saw, and he would sit down with this saw between his legs, you know, like a handsaw thing, and he played it with like, one of, what are these things called? A bow. a bow, thank you. How many of you have heard the saw? Yeah. It's a remarkable sound. Remarkable is a generous term for me to use. But <laughs> some people love that sound, but that was special music for us, and we were just like extended family, and it was wonderful. I found Jesus. I grew up in the faith. There were people who loved me and cared for me. I think about church, very positive feelings are evoked. For some of you, when the word church is used, you think about a much more formal and maybe a liturgical and more somber way of worship than what we've entered into tonight. And maybe for you, that somberness and that singing ancient hymns and having liturgical worship and chants was very meaningful and full of life for you. Or maybe you had some tough things that you encountered in that. Maybe, especially this is true at our 11 o'clock Sunday service, there are folks that have, have actually lived their whole life far from God. And when the word church is used, the feelings and thoughts that are evoked in them Well, like my friend that I had coffee at Starbucks with this week, until a few weeks ago when he attended a service here, mid-30s guy, mid-30s, professional guy, the only exposure to church that he had was on TV and in movies. And so we had fun as I interviewed him. I said, so what was your imagination about church? And as you would suspect, it was hilarious from all the caricatures that he had. Church, feelings are evoked. It's a mixed bag for many of us. In this The Good Life series, we've come tonight to good faith community, which is the phrase that we're using to describe this local collection of believers. And so often we talk about here, near, and far, and what God's doing around the world and through us in other places, but, but this weekend we get to talk about specifically what he's doing here. And I'm going to ask you to think with me about, um, about taking a look at kind of a a physical exam report about the church, the body of Christ, a metaphor. 
it was uh, November that uh, I got to go to the doctor and I requested a physical exam. Any of you good people do that? Come on, let's see it here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all of us are planned to and 10% of us do. I know how that works, yeah. So uh, this wasn't just any physical exam though. This was an eight-hour exam. Yeah, eight hours. I chose it. I got there at eight o'clock in the morning. I went right into the room. I'd already filled out six or seven online questionnaires. I had already given all kinds of medical history. Sat down, doctor and a nurse, met with them for six hours, and then had a seventh hour with a nutritionist and an eighth hour with a trainer. And then I went away after eight-hour exam. And then six weeks later, I sat down for an hour and a half with the doctor, and this is the book that he gave me. This is 140 pages all about my body. And no, I know that you really don't care. And if you are Snoopy, no, you can't see it. But I will tell you that in the final uh, summary page, before getting into the over 40 lab work test results, that there's a whole section called Physical Exam Abnormal Findings. Some of you, Cindy, don't laugh so hard. Some of you suspected that there would be maybe even a whole appendix about the abnormal findings in my life. Why did I go to the work and pain and nuisance and poking and prodding? And because this happened to be a gift to me, it wasn't an expense, but it would have been $3,500 had I paid for it. Why would any of us care to have this kind of a physical exam? Well, I know stuff about my body that I got to tell you was pretty important for me to know. In fact, if I behave more in the future than I have in the past, I'll be a better steward of this body. That's what I learned. And there's very specific things that I can do to take more healthy steps toward forward. What you have in the Bible in much of the New Testament, after the stories, the books of Jesus, telling about Jesus' earthly life and ministry, we call those the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Once it moves into Acts, the history of the early church and then beyond, it's... <laughs> It's mostly local churches or regional churches having the health of the body examined. And a report that comes back and says, let me tell you how things are going. This is the good, this is the bad, and this is the ugly. There's some serious abnormalities going on here in the body, and here's some corrective measures for you to move forward. Isn't that cool that God would love us that much? That's why he challenges us. Once in a while, he lets us see ourselves, and we learn some things about ourselves, and as a result, we can move forward. One of the things that we do around here at Evergreen is uh, the staff periodically gets an employee performance review. Any of you are managers that do these or your subordinates that get these? Sure. Yeah, many of us do. In fact, uh, I got my employee performance review uh, the uh, the 1st of December. In Foursquare, pastors are appointed and then you kind of get stuck with us, right? That's kind of how it works. It's kind of like an arranged marriage thing. And so I have a boss, our district supervisor, Larry Spousta, and I was in his office. I was called to the principal's office, yeah. Actually, I initiated, but we had a wonderful conversation, and he was very complimentary about most of what he had to say. And then at the end, he did what a nice, discreet boss would do. He pulled out a piece of paper, and it had pink notes on it, pink And he said, oh, by the way, before we leave, I just wanted to mention. And can you believe that my boss had just a couple of things that he wanted to mention? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could believe that, couldn't you? Yeah. Under authority, he was giving me a review. I love the one we use. It has 12 categories, and you either get a one, two, three, or four. You either get needs immediate improvement. (laughs) Yeah, right? 
approaching standards. I think that's like a C. Contributory performance, that's like a B. And outstanding, exceeds all expectations. That's like an A+. As we've been looking in the book of Ephesians, and particularly as we look at some of the other letters, like the church letters to the church at Corinth, man, there were some things that were really commendable, and there were some things that, that they were still working on, and there were some things that were kind of seriously out of whack, and then there was some stuff that was serious, serious improvement. As we read several verses from Ephesians chapter 4, I think that as you look at this picture, that many of you today are going to find yourself in this picture. In fact, you look like this. Evergreen. Actually, more important point of view. Your experience in participating as a part of this congregation looks a lot like this. Would you read with me, or notice with me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says this. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, just as each part does its work. Wow. Did you notice all the energy in those two verses? I mean, the verbs are just exploding. We talk about ourselves sometimes as an activist church because you've noticed every time we get together, there's always something to do when you leave, right? We are an activist church. In fact, we're a lousy church for people that like to come an hour a week and experience a program that is done for them. We're just not a good church for pacifist people because we believe that the church of Jesus is activist. Did you notice the energy here? Speaking, maturing, held together, supporting, joined, grows, builds, work. You almost sweat just reading those two verses. And we discover these things out of that passage. Notice on your notes of the slide, these three big ideas come out of it about what local church is all about. The first thing is that we connect. It says that we are joined together. You have two pieces of wood. You're going to glue them together like my son-in-law did. I got to take a look at it last weekend in Marysville, Washington. He created his own glue lamb beam. Lamb beam, is that what they're called? Lamb beam. And so he took two wonderful 12 by 2s and he slapped a bunch of glue down them and he joined them together. And those two 2 by 12s were joined together. It says here that we are joined together with each other. We're joined with Jesus and then we're joined together with the other. I mean, you look at the people around. You say, really, you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, don't say that. That wouldn't be nice. But yeah, we're joined together. We're stuck together. And then it says that we are held together. This is like where it really gets sticky. This is where my son-in-law's big clamps went across that lambing he was making. So that they were joined, they were glued, and now they are held together. And if he leaves those clamps up for a few weeks and tries to tear those two boards apart, you know what will happen, don't you? The boards will shatter before they'll release from the glue. So there is a connection, and then there is a commitment Today, when I got to officiate the wedding for Bob and Rhonda, a couple that's part of the church, 
part of what they were doing today was that they were acknowledging that that they believe that God has joined them together. They found each other in life, and they decided that they liked each other, and they respected each other, and they fell in love together. And then they decided that today was going to be their day of making a commitment. This is the irrevocable commitment. And as I stood, and as they stood on, on, a, on sacred ground, it was in someone's big living room, holy ground before God and everyone, with Jesus there to do a miracle of marriage, they took their joining each other, and they made a commitment. They went from connected to committed, and they are now held together in a vow that they have made to one another for life. Wow. And what's the result, the Apostle Paul says, when a group of people in a local congregation connect and commit? The result is, did you see the next word? What is it? Change. Oh, darn. Really? change. What's that all about? It says that then what happens is that we grow and we are built up as everyone is contributing by doing their part. In fact, the word is their work. Everyone has a role in this thing. Growth, by definition, is always a part of change. Change equals growth. Being built equals change. Now, not all change is good, right? One of the things that the, the good doctor discovered was something that Anne didn't need me to go to the doctor for eight hours to discover. You'll find this hard to believe. The doctor said that my hearing loss is accelerated for my age. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Anne knew this a couple of years ago when I started asking for the remote and said, hey, you know, or can you turn that up a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, there's something about this change. Not all change is good. As my body gets older, there's stuff that's starting to fall apart. Not all change is good. But all growth is change. All building produces change. So the environment of people coming together, joining together, meeting one another, connecting, and then committing to be a part of doing life together we can't do life with everybody here at Evergreen, but we can do life with some people and making a commitment that for this season of time, I'm going to connect with you and commit with you in these ways, and we're going to share life together, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to be here for you. You're going to be here for me. We're going to know each other. I'm going to know your name. You're going to know my name and my story. In the context of that, change and growth and transformation takes place. That's what happens. In fact, this is the way God designed the church right from the start. Notice in our second passage tonight, we're going to do a flashback a few decades before Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and the story that Dr. Luke tells us about what the very first church looked like in the city of Jerusalem, probably just days or weeks after uh, they began uh, the day of Pentecost when the church was launched. And notice there in Acts chapter 4, verses 42, and then 46 and 47, what they looked like as they met together. I read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's what it says. Snapshot of the early church. Now, you know, don't you, that if people that were there would visit Evergreen this weekend, they really would not know what we were doing. You, you know that, don't you? The, the way we do church is so much a cultural artifact. But the substance of what we do in church is a universal principle of how God has chosen for his people to connect and to commit and share life with one another. Notice there are three, a couple of things that just come bursting out of the passage. The first is that they were connected to each other. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And they ate together, and they prayed together, and they shared together. Did you notice that they ate together? You notice that in that passage we read three times it talks about eating? And once it talks about praying, and once it talks about praising. I kind of get a kick out of that. I don't know that eating is more important than praying or praising. I certainly wouldn't go there or try to infer it from the passage. I just happened as a person that likes food to love it that he talked about food three times in that passage. They broke bread together. And generally out of those breaking bread together, meals together, they, they took a moment as Jesus did in what we call the Last Supper to especially remember and commemorate his life and death and resurrection as we will tonight in the receiving of communion. They connected. And secondly, they committed. It says that they were committed to learning. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Scripture for us and the teaching by the Spirit. And they were committed in relationships, fellowship together, connected and committed. And then there was this spontaneous strategy that came out of how they gathered. They gathered in the big group and they gathered in the small groups. They met every day in the temple courts. You know, don't you, that the first Christians did not think of themselves as different from Jews. They thought of themselves as Jews who had discovered and accepted Messiah. So they were mature Jews who had taken the next best step with God. That's how they viewed themselves. It was some time later that people in the city of Antioch, a few days travel away, actually called this Jewish sect Christians for the first time. And so, of course, they worshipped around the Jewish temple. And they would collect in the large outer portico where men and women and kids were able to collect. And that's where they had their big gathering. And then they met small from house to house. And in the middle of them doing that, Jesus built his church with remarkable results that had to do with many people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And isn't that ultimately our bottom line, really? The mission of Jesus that he commissioned us into to go into all the world and to make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. That's the big mission. And you know, this is just a point of celebration. In a couple of weeks, we'll have our annual congregational meeting, but I just had to share some very cool results with you about this last year. And, and I don't know if you ever clap in the middle of a sermon, but this is worthy of getting excited about. I don't know, are they up, Nick? I can't see. God has so blessed and favored us last year. Does that say 236, 56? 256 people uh, during various services and ministries here in the, the last 12 months, said yes to Jesus. That's amazing. Yeah. 
And you know, sometimes I don't know what a conversion looks like, right? Because we do different things like raise hands and open eyes and things. And who knows what God's really up to? But I do know what water baptisms look like. And we counted those. I know how to count those. And 82 people took the joining with Jesus to the com- expressing that commitment to him publicly in water baptism last year. That's just amazing. We are so blessed and favored. And yeah. And part of what you're doing in creating a context that Jesus can trust seekers to come and find him here and that he can trust people to express their faith in baptism and begin to grow and mature in their relationship with Jesus. One of the reasons he can trust us with new followers of him is because you've decided that it's worth the messiness and the pain of being community together. And joining and connecting and committing in ways of loving and being loved and serving and being served that provide an environment for others. So let's talk about the implications for us as a church. And then we're going to receive communion together. First of all, we gather in the big gathering. And in the gathering, there's celebration and worship. We use songs like the church has for a long time. We don't have any indication that in Acts chapter 2 they were singing, but we do know they were praying and praising. We do know that by the time Paul wrote a a few decades later this book to the church at Ephesus, they sang songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing has been a part of the life of the church almost from the very start. Music comes out of culture. It's a cultural artifact. Some of us appreciate ancient music. My rule of thumb is, if it's the morning before 9 o'clock, I listen to classical music. I happen to find that that's a wonderful and appealing way to start the day. There are some of you that are nodding, and most of you are going, you are crazy. If it ain't country, baby, God didn't, you know, I mean, right? Some of you are there. Music is a cultural artifact, and some people find it very meaningful to go back several hundred years and to tie in with the roots of the traditions of the church and to use music and liturgies that come out of that. We happen to worship in a rather free way, and our intention is to express ourselves in culturally consistent ways. And so there's more change that happens in our liturgy, in how we do church. Change that is sometimes difficult and sometimes appealing and sometimes it's an experiment that fails and other times one that works. But part of our change is that we know that the way we worship has a lot to do with the context in which we live. And so we sing and so we pray and we give tithes and we take communion. We're going to do that today. And we have baby dedications. We'll do that next week. And we have water baptisms. We'll do that the following week. And we have this wonderful celebration that takes place. And then you know what we do when we leave here? We go out there and we eat, right? Because we just discovered tonight that that's like three times biblical. Yeah. And the food stuff we do almost every time we get together, of course, is entirely on purpose. It is biblical. There's something that happens, at least with me, that when I'm munching on something and sipping something, it just seems to remove some of the awkwardness of engaging with people. And there's something of fellowship in the breaking of bread, using that old phrase, that just kind of opens us up to each other. And so we do this in big church. In big church, there's biblical teaching. And we want our teaching to always accomplish two goals. First of all, we want it to be done in a way that people far from God could still make sense of most of it. Did you know that from time to time we recruit mystery shoppers to come to church? It's really fun, seriously. 
people that are far from church experience that I bump to into life, and sometimes I give away stuff in a relationship, and people say, if there's ever anything I can do for you, Jared, just let me know. By the way, I think the word's out here because you never say that to me. You don't. No, no. Because it's dangerous, because I always take them up on it. If they're far from God, I would say, now that you mention it, there is something you could do for me. What I'd love for you to do is to be a mystery shopper at Evergreen. And would you come to one of our services and then meet with me and debrief on the other side? And one of the things that I'm always very interested in the conversation of, when, when the speaker gave the talk, what was that like for you? What made sense for you? What was helpful for you? What was confusing for you? What was really weird for you in all of that? Because we think it makes sense for God's truth to be shared in a way that anybody can probably follow, listen, and understand. Now, the second value is not a competing value, but it needs to be very thoughtful. And that's that people that have been following Jesus for six or seven or eight decades could come and interact with God's word and discover something new and fresh that would challenge and encourage them in their life and that they'll end up knowing God better and loving Jesus more and more filled with his spirit because of their interaction with God's, words as well, God's word as well. Big church, we celebrate, we worship, biblical teaching. And in big church, we connect in relationships. In fact, many of you invest the first three minutes after a service while you're on your way to the lobby or you're on your way to pick up kids in intentionally connecting with someone that you don't know. Intentionally. First three minutes are for someone you don't know. The next 30 minutes can be for all of your buddies and friends because we want those relationships to grow too. The first three minutes for someone you didn't know. It was so much fun. Uh, you know that there's stuff happening here all the time. And Thursday night, uh, we launched Parent Coaching Group. And that started, can you believe this? With a meal. Can you imagine that? It started with a meal. And so I got to hang out uh, and, uh, in the surge classroom with, the, with uh, folks. I sat down at one of the tables. And I was talking with one of the women. And she said, Jared, I have a fun story to tell you. She said, um, at Christmas Eve, I came to one of the services. And she said that she went out to the lobby and, and saw what she thought was someone that she knows from the gym where she works out every day across the lobby. And she thought, that looks like my friend from the gym. And she tried to get through the lobby, but you were all messing it up. You know, you can't get through the lobby, right? You can't get from A to B. You have to go to Z and X to get over there. She couldn't get through it. The friend left. And so when she saw her friend at the gym the next time, she said, I think I saw you at my church on Christmas Eve. And if you noticed me and I didn't uh, acknowledge you, please don't be offended. I was trying to get to you, but, but I couldn't get across all the people. And the friend said, oh, really? You were there. Yeah. The first person said, yeah, uh, that's my church. And how did you get there? And the friend said, that's my church. The first person said, I've gone there 11 years. When did you come? And she said, we've been there 12 years. Yeah. So when I say invest the first three minutes in connecting with someone new to you, they may or may not be guests around here. If you come to the 11 o'clock service on Sunday, they're very likely will be guests. But invest some time in connecting with some people beyond your usual. And then there's serving so others can worship. We call it this, work one, worship one. Work one, worship one. Some of you come on Saturday night so you can come back on Sunday morning and serve in children or student ministries or in some other role. And some folks come to two services on Sunday morning. They work one, they worship one. It's how we do things around here. 
That's the big group. And then there's the small group. Oh, man. This is where life is really lived out. Connecting with people. It's where you really know. It's where we really care. It's where we really pray. It's where if you're not there, you're missed. It's where you're really encouraged. It's where people really know your story. In a small group, it's where relationships constantly both challenge us and encourage us. Doing life together is messy. It's tough. It's not, always fu- it's not always warm and fuzzy. It's an awful lot like a family, isn't it? We live life together, and we know each other at our best points and at our most difficult points as well. Here's what we discover from Scripture and from our life experientially. If you just do big church, you get half church. If you just do small church, you get half church. Whole church is devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and meeting in the temple courts daily and daily going from house to house. Half church plus half church equals whole church. I have met people like myself who have at seasons of my life, I'll tell my story, not theirs, At seasons of my life, I've tried to do it by doing half church. Because frankly, small church is messy church. Big church is easy church. I don't have to reveal my stuff. I don't have to be known. I don't have to face my fears. I don't have to be a challenge. I don't find myself being accountable. I can do big church very easily. I've tried that on for size. It's comfortable, but it's just half church. In fact, if I just do half church big, I am probably going to find myself unconnected, undercommitted, underknown, undercared for, underprayed for, and lonely. And I will wonder what's wrong with those people. What's wrong with that church? That church just isn't warm and caring. I've been gone from big church for three weeks in a row and no one has called. Well, hmm. You try to get away from that small church. You try to be gone five minutes late. There's going to be a text. Ten minutes late, you're going to have a call. Twenty minutes late, table, get in the car and come looking for you. Because that's where we connect in a meaningful kind of way. Yeah. But what keeps us from connecting? I think fear keeps us from connecting, doesn't it? It does for me. Do I want to go to their house? I've never been to their house. What if they live life very differently than me? What if they live a lot nicer than I live and I feel socially awkward? What if they live a lot dumpier than I live and there's bugs crawling up my leg that create grief for me? Or is it going to be okay to take my kids really? And who are those kids going to be with? And what kids are in there anyway? And, and then they might get into my stuff and start asking me questions and expect me to talk about it. And, and what if I'm honest because I desperately want to open up to others. But what if I do and I find out that they really don't love me, that I'm really not accepted? There's a ton of fears, aren't they? I think another reason that it's tough for us to connect in small group is because we're busy. I don't know about you, but my guess is that most of your calendars have plenty of stuff in there, right? Plenty of stuff, sure. I think one of the reasons that are hard for us to connect in the small church setting is 
is because of personality. It was last week's Time Magazine. The feature article was on introverts. And I'm one of those people. I was very happy about that. And after I read the article, I asked Anne if she would read that article. You want to know your old hubby? Read the article. About a third of us are introverts. About a third of us are kind of half introvert, half extrovert. About a third of us, you. About a third of you are extroverts. Very interesting article. So, for example, there's extroverts that we all know. Bill Clinton is an extrovert. George W. Bush is an extrovert. Anne Roth, this will be a surprise to you, my wife, is an extrovert. You know what it means to be an extrovert? It means that you love people, you hang out with people, and when you're done hanging out with people, what will really charge you up is to hang out with people more. That's what that means. Yeah. Let me tell you about how we introverts are wired. We love people, we hang out with people, and when we're done hanging out with you, we're tired. And we want to go hang out with ourselves. Yeah. President Obama is an introvert. Hillary Clinton is an introvert. It's not how we behave outwardly to people. It's not that we're motivated to love or not. It's not that we like people or we don't like people. It's how we get charged up. So this is how it works for we introverts. I have an opportunity to connect with you in a small group. I'm getting past my fears. I'm making a commitment to do this thing. I'm going to go for it. I'm busy, but I'm carving out the time in my schedule, and it gets closer and closer to the time, and I get to that time, and I'm needing to leave the house, and I'm saying to myself, self, you are maxed with people today, and if you go, you'll probably not behave all that well. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works for us. Will any of you proudly and boldly say, I'm with you, Jared. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, about a third of you. Amazing thing, isn't it? So, hey, you extroverts, cut us some slack. We love you. You just wear us out. Yeah. <laughs> Big church, small church. So, you know him. Name's Roger. He'll be here at 9 o'clock tomorrow. Roger's attended this church for 63 years, working on 64. So, uh, you know, I hang out at different places, so last weekend I wasn't here, but if I were here, I would have seen Roger, 9 o'clock. Uh, I don't go any place on Monday that includes people, because that's how I love the world better the rest of the week, so I didn't see Roger on Monday. <laughs> if you call me on Monday, if you have an emergency, if you press me, I will respond. You won't enjoy me, but I will respond. I'm an introvert, getting recharged. On Tuesday morning, 6 o'clock, men's discussion group, IHOP, Roger was there. Dropped by the church a little bit later, Roger was volunteering in the kitchen, in the office. Did I mention that he's been here for 63 years worshiping in this church? So on uh, Friday morning, or, uh, Wednesday morning, where was Roger on Wednesday morning? Where he was on Wednesday? I saw Roger somewhere. It was on Wednesday evening, Ignite. I was around. I don't know if he was here. Roger's often here cleaning up after the 100 or the 150 kids that come through here like a wild tornado. Roger has a place down here that he works and cleans. Thursday morning, guys, was he at the Thursday morning men's thing at, uh, for mostly retired guys at Hales? Breakfast there? He's there, yeah. A couple of weeks when we do Adults Alive, a luncheon on, Wednesday, on uh, Thursdays, the third Thursday of the month, R Roger, Roger will be there. What have I learned about Roger among many other wonderful and noble values and virtues? 
You know, this church has changed a lot in the 63 years that Roger's been here. <laughs> I don't know all the stories, but I know some of the stories. Changed a lot, hasn't it? What has Roger discovered apparently now into his seventh decade of making this a good faith community? I think he's discovered that while almost everything has changed in terms of how we connect, not in terms of our conviction about Jesus and God and the Bible and truth and the fullness of God's spirit and being a Christ follower, but beyond those fundamental foundational spiritual biblical beliefs, what has Roger discovered about the church? If it's growing, if it's being built, it's always changing. And apparently what he's discovered is whatever the church is becoming is a good community of faith for him to connect to and around and be connected and committed while this thing is growing and building. The flyer that you received is a fresh version of this one. There's about 40 opportunities, both to connect, to be served, and to be cared for, and to be of service of others as well. As you notice later, as you go through these various opportunities, you'll notice that about half of the contacts are not people who are on staff, but volunteers. Many of you are listed here as well because the staff facilitates ministry for other people, but there's a ton of stuff that we don't do and that we don't lead. Opportunities to be of service. And I want to conclude with you today by uh, an invitation to take a next good step. You'll notice in your notes that the evergreen way is one plus one plus one. One plus one plus one plus one. And I know that I can't do math yet, but you know what I think that that equals, right? 10. A 10 relationship with Jesus. There's lots of ways to do church, but the evergreen way is this. One plus one plus one plus one. I think that you'll find all of these in Acts chapter two, the passage that we read and a couple of intermediate verses that we skipped. One, your own personal daily devotions with Jesus. They were devoted to the Lord. Your relationship is a personal relationship. Number two, one weekly worship. Worship one, serve one, one weekly worship. They gathered in big group. Three, regular group. They went from house to house. Group up, do half church plus half church. And finally, they gave generously. We give biblically, we tithe, we give offerings here. It's how we participate. It's the evergreen way. And if you're feeling unconnected, a little bit out of touch, not quite as engaged as much as you would like, or feeling led to connect with some new people, there's about 40 opportunities here for you to try some things on for size. And why are we talking this weekend about community of faith? Not just because it's where we came in this series of the good life, but because the prophetic word of the Lord to our congregation this year is, I am building a transforming community. It was the word of the Lord gave us toward the end of last summer for the 12-month season starting in September and, and then going through this next summer. We're right in the middle of it now. Now notice that that's a promise of what Jesus is doing here at Evergreen. I am building a transforming community. So it wasn't so much that he was telling us to do that. In fact, wasn't Jesus very clear? I will build my what? 
church. He never delegated that to anybody. You don't build the church. I don't build the church. Jesus builds the church. He's the head of his body. But Jesus said to us by his spirit, I am this year at Evergreen, I am building a transforming community. That let us know two things, and we can participate and cooperate with both. The first is that he's changing lives this year. I'm different than I was in September. My life is being transformed. He's working in your life this year. He's changing you by his spirit. The second thing we know is this. He's giving us a hunger to get connected. I heard every day this week that I was with people, in one way or another, this statement said by friends. I want to get more connected. And it wasn't a complaint. It wasn't even an observation. It was just something that was in their heart. And they thought they were unique about that. But what I heard was, Jesus, you really are doing this. Why are we creating new opportunities to connect? Why are we inviting you to do it? Why are we encouraging you to take the good, bold step to reach out and try some things on for size? It's because this year, Jesus is connecting us in some new and profound ways. So welcome to the new relationships that he's going to find for you.